Welcome to The Changemakers by Food Niche, a podcast that stories and insights of visionaries tackling some of the biggest challenges facing our food system. On this podcast, you will find interviews with innovators, scientists, advocates, policymakers, educators, and many more, all united by a common objective. Get ready to be informed, inspired, and challenged. Now join the show host, Dr. Julia Oleandro. I'm really excited about today's topic and our guest of honor as well is a distinguished scientist who has made remarkable discoveries in the field of microbiome. His work has shaped our understanding of how microbes in our gut interact with the food we eat to impact our health. If you've ever been curious about weight loss, microbiome, and gut health, well, this is one episode you do not want to miss any part of. Our guest today is Dr. Lipin Zhao. He is a leading scientist recognized around the world for his work on microbiome. He is a professor at Rutgers University, where he currently serves as a chair of applied microbiology at the Department of Biochemistry and Microbiology. He also serves as a director for the Center for Nutrition, Microbiome and Health. He is a fellow of the American Academy of Microbiology and a senior fellow of the Canadian Institute of Advanced Research. Dr. Lipinzel, thank you so much for making time to join us today. Thank you, Julia. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure. So we'll get started. I recently read a story about you published in Science, uh, where they described your journey, talked about how you started out after your postdoc, how you found yourself a little bit overweight and decided to, to change your diet. Will you, do you mind telling us a little bit about this? Okay, thank you. Well, until I got my PhD in 1989, I was uh, very lean. You know, for many years, I was uh, 130 pounds something. And uh, so for my height, it's, uh, it's very thin. And uh, after I got my PhD, my wife and my daughter, we moved together and we started to have a regular, you know, schedule and uh, dinner every night. My wife is a great cook. And uh, so I put up weights very quickly. Within about a year, you know, I put up about uh, 20 pounds. And then I came to the States for two years as a postdoc at Cornell University. And during that period, I picked up another 20 pounds. And uh, so for many years, I was not worried, actually. Well, in, in the early 20 years, when China opened to the outside world and the uh, economy was rapidly developing, our living standard was increasing. And uh, at that time, people thought uh, obesity was not a concern. It's actually a symbol of uh, being, you know, well taken care of, you have enough food and <laughs> all that. So people are not concerned. But then gradually I found I have some health problems developing. So it's really uh, a concern. Uh, and, and then 2004, uh, I came across a paper published by Dr. Jeff Gordon uh, at University of Washington, St. Louis. He found that in animal model, in mouse model, that uh, gut microbiota actually play a very important role in regulate uh, fat uh, production and storing uh, in animals. 
So then I thought, okay, so this may be something happening in my body. And uh, maybe my gut microbiota was driving my own obesity and other uh, metabolic health issues, uh, which was going on. So as a microbiome researcher, maybe I should focus on this question, you know, whether in human uh, gut microbiota also play a very important role in uh, obesity and other related diseases. So I started to work on this. I did some animal work and I found out the relationship between diet and the gut microbiota and how we may use diet to change the structure of the gut microbiota and uh, help the host uh, improve metabolic health, uh, reduce weight. So I then I tried uh, this uh, similar dietary scheme uh, on myself and reduced about 45 pounds over one and a half year and also recovered from all, all the metabolic uh, syndrome associated with being overweight and obese and, and then remained lean since then. So this was the, the science story showed a picture of me before and after the intervention wow. and uh, yeah that's that's quite interesting and i know a lot of people are doing they're working hard each day to lose weight sometimes they lose the weight and then they put it back on then they lose it and they put it back on and being able to see that number one you did lose the weight and number two you kept it off as well and one of the key questions i want to ask you is uh, the diet you were on and how you how that diet influenced uh, your biota and eventually affected your overall well-being. Because, of course, it wasn't just that you, you, you lost some weight, you actually felt better. All the challenge, medical challenges you had before, your body did reset and you felt uh, much better. So it would be good to uh, break things down a little bit. So what kind of diet were you on? What were the main triggers in the diet? Was it a very high fiber diet, low fat. What exactly did you have in your diet that created the change that you saw? So if you look at what I did, okay, yeah, diet is the primary thing that I changed. And uh, that probably could be responsible for my uh, weight loss and the improvement of uh, metabolic health. But actually, the diet is just an environmental trigger or environmental condition. What's actually changing is the gut microbiota. So this is something, this is a missing linkage in obesity and uh, other metabolic related diseases. Because uh, previously, I, I still remember that uh, uh, some people comment on Professor Jeff Gordon's publication back in 2006 to show that gut microbiota plays a very important role in obesity that it was totally wrong. Why people think it's, uh, uh, some people could think gut microbiota may play a role in, in obesity is totally wrong. It's just because we seems to be, we don't need uh, any other things. It's just the calorie, calorie in, calorie out. You have more calorie uh, you consume, less cal uh, you, you take and the less calorie you consume, yeah. then the actual calorie will be accumulated as fat. It's as simple as that, but it's not, okay? <laughs> so first, Professor Gordon's work showed that germ-free mice do not become obese, even though you put them on high calorie diet. And why? So they eventually identified a particular gene called the fasting-induced adipose factor gene, which actually very important in the, this gene, if it's turned on, 
the product of this gene will promote fatty acid oxidation and reduce fatty acid accumulation. So that means if you want to burn fat, you need to turn this gene on. So, and uh, it will turn the, uh, you know, promote fat consumption and inhibit fat accumulation. Uh, this gene is always on in germ-free mouse gut. So that's why germ-free mice cannot become fat, even though you, you put them on high-fat diet. However, he also showed that if you reintroduce the whole gut microbiota, a normal gut microbiota, back to germ-free mice, put, you continue to put them on the same high-calorie diet, they would become eventually obese and insulin-resistant. And they actually, they consume the less uh, high-fat diet when they were uh, compared with when they were germ-free. So they eat less compared to when they were germ-free, but then they start to become uh, obese and uh, diabetic or insulin resistant. And uh, so we actually found in human that in a particular 20-year-old mobility obese uh, individual, a young man, he was uh, about almost 350 pounds, BMI nearly 60. And uh, so we found there, there was a particular pathogenic bacteria overgrowing his gut. And this bacteria called Enterobacter coli. And we identified a particular strain in that species uh, we named as B29. It was overgrowing in his gut. And when we put him on our microbiome uh, modulating diet, it quickly declined to almost zero. And then he started to recover, lose a substantial amount of weight over 110 pounds, you know, within uh, 23 weeks, and also recovered uh, diabetes and, and other metabolic problem. So we suspect that, that particular pathogen overgrowing uh, at the beginning in his gut may be driving his uh, disease. So we isolate that particular pathogenic strain and we put it into germ-free mice. So this one single strain colonizing germ-free mouse gut was enough to make the mouse become obese and insulin resistant and also having developed a fatty liver on high fat diet. So we don't need the whole gut microbiota as shown by Dr. Gordon's work. We only need one human pathogen overgrowing obese and diabetic people's gut to induce, make the germ-free mice become obese and diabetic and insulin resistant. And uh, so this was actually the first case to show that some particular pathogenic bacterial strains in human gut are actually working as a pathogen for obesity, for inducing obesity and the related metabolic conditions. That's quite, that's quite impressive. Yeah, so that means if you want to lose weight, you need to make sure that we also showed that exactly this pathogen can actually turn off the gene for burning stored fat, this fat gene. And uh, so if you want to lose weight, you need to reduce the population level of such pathogen. And so that this gene is fasting induced, means hunger can turn on this gene. But if you have a very high population level of this pathogen, this gene cannot be turned on, even though you are hungry. That's why it's so difficult to lose weight. If you have some you know, bacteria which you know, shut down the gene which required for burning stored fat, and no hunger can induce that gene on. 
So, but after you re reduce this pathogen to a very low level, it's no longer uh, keeping your, your gene off, then hunger can induce that gene on. And after the gene was turned on, you start to burn stored fat as an energy source, you, you no longer feel hungry. So the hunger, the hunger feeling is just a signal to turn on the FF gene. After you turn on the FF gene, you no longer feel hungry. That's why you, know, you start to lose weight. But if the bacteria there to inhibit this gene, no matter how hungry you are, you cannot turn on that gene. So I think the, the failure of uh, losing weight very often is due to this hunger pain. If you have a continuous hunger feeling all the time, how can you lose weight? You cannot uh, sustain. That's very, very difficult. Yeah. So somehow, if you reduce this overgrowing pathogen, which is shut down the gene you required for burning short fat, then you can, you, you can uh, you know, lose weight because uh, the hunger feeling will turn on the gene required for burning short fat. After you turn on the gene, you start to burn short fat. You no longer feel hungry, and then you, you start to lose weight. So th this is, I think this is the key. Many people actually don't understand this. We published the paper, we show that, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's actually the case. And uh, so then we, we developed a diet where we promote the growth of another very important group of beneficial bacteria. They are producing short-term fatty acids. So when they are promoted, become predominant, they take over the gut ecosystem, they change the gut environment in a way that become inhibited to the growth of previous overgrowing pathogens, which actually, you know, make you obese and uh, insulin resistant. So th this is how, you know, the whole uh, story, it's uh, developed over 10 years, more than 10 years of my, my work and uh, supported by a few very key publications, yeah. including, uh, uh, yeah, one in science. It's, it's very interesting because you, you, you said a lot in, in those few minutes. I mean, it starts from this, a lot of people just think about food, just food. Okay, if I can cut back on my food, I'll lose weight. But now you've kind of like enlightened us a bit, showing um, that number one, that are these pathogens that could, that easily grows, that, that grows quite quickly, that could populate your microbiome and trigger changes in your genes. You know, that's something people don't even think about. They absolutely, sometimes you think, oh, you know, I, I, I gain weight easily because it's in my genes, but not, not like there's some triggers that go on over time uh, that, could, um, that could cause what you're seeing. So one thing I want to ask is these pathogens, how do they come about? How do, we, how do people acquire them? Is this something that over time, your uh, gut microbiome shifts um, in population of um, bacteria that grows in it? Or is it something that it comes through diet? Or is it something that it's in the environment that you live? Maybe some people that live in a particular area are more predisposed to it than others. What exactly shapes um, this population of your gut microbiome? If you, we found not just one particular strain. We found uh, in our work, actually we found three different species all contain such obesity-inducing pathogenic bacteria, and uh, they, they share something in common. They are gram-negative endotoxin-producing bacteria. Endotoxin is some molecule on the surface of bacteria, such bacteria, 
which can, when come into contact with our immune cells, can induce inflammation. So we actually worked with uh, Professor uh, Philip Jahard in Inha at Paris, and we eventually identified that if you knock out a gene in the synthetic pathway for this endotoxin of this pathogen, you abolished everything. So the mutant can no longer induce uh, obesity. And then this endotoxin has a receptor from the host side. So if you knock out the receptor of this endotoxin in the mouse and uh, also make them germ-free, and then the pathogen can no longer induce obesity in the uh, TOLAC receptor knockout mice. So you need a molecular crosstalk. There must be a particular toxin called endotoxin on the surface of such pathogen. And there is a receptor on the host side called TOLAC receptor 4. And when these two uh, molecules come to cross and combine together, they trigger inflammation. And then eventually you see obesity, you see fatty liver, you see insulin resistance, almost everything you see. But if you block this, you see nothing. And uh, so basically this is a, a very important uh, discovery. And uh, there are many such endotoxin producing bacteria. They are part of our normal gut microbiota. So they are called the pathobionts. They are not the, the completely infectious agents like pathogens. So pathogens, they are not a normal part of our gut microbiome. When they come into our gut, they induce inflammation, they induce diarrhea, in, they induce infection. But if you use antibiotics to kill them, you cure the disease. And, uh, but this kind of uh, endotoxin producing bacteria for obesity inducing, they are actually a normal part of our gut microbiota, but they have the potential to become pathogenic. So that's why there's a new name for them called pathogenic symbionts. We call them pathobionts. They are actually easily can come into our gut when we were born. And uh, we need them. We cannot just completely get rid of them because they are there to train our immune system. If we don't come into contact with such pathobionts in the early days of our life, our immune system will not be properly educated. So we will be overreacting to many normal things. And then you become allergic to many things. You, know, you will develop uh, you know, uh, asthma. M many, many different diseases can be developed because you don't have a properly trained immune system. So they come into our guts as part of uh, a normal gut microbiota. They are pathogens, but they are there. If you, if you keep them in your gut and keep them low, they won't be a, a concern. But when you eat the wrong diet and you promote their growth, then they become predominant and they produce too much endotoxin. And interestingly, the endotoxin they produce in the gut they don't usually get across our gut barrier, get into our bloodstream. When they would get into our bloodstream, when we eat high-fat diet. When we eat high-fat diet, we know that the fat is very difficult to be taken in to our uh, system as a nutrient. Uh, we actually need to emulsify them because they are fat. They don't dissolve into water. We need to emulsify them into very small droplets and carry them with a protein called a camel micron and carry the fat molecule inside. 
when a, a protein carry uh, emulsified fat molecule inside, the endotoxin has a structure similar to fat, to, to the saturated fat. So when we eat fat, fat-containing food, and our system, when take the fat inside, will also take the endotoxin inside. So after you eat a huge steak, you, two hours you measure your bloodstream, you have a spike of uh, endotoxin. So if you have a continuously higher fatty dietary pattern, you will have chronically higher endotoxin level in your bloodstream. That will induce inflammation. Okay, so anyway, uh, I may be giving you too much technical details. <laughs> you know, this is what we know. And you know, this is what we know with molecular rigor. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's, um, it's very crucial for people to be able to uh, understand how those um, pathogens come in into their uh, gut microbiome, what they're doing to enable them. Because like you mentioned, this microbiome, uh, this um, bacteria can be, um, can be enabled by the kind of diet you eat. And then of course their growth can be ampered as well by the kind of diet you eat as well. So those information are very, uh, the, the information you provided is very, 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 very uh, useful. So I want to move a bit towards immune. I know you started a bit talking about the immune system and I want to dive more into that area because it's something that a lot of people are curious about, especially because in the past year, we've all witnessed uh, the impact of COVID-19 and the coronavirus um, on people's health. A lot of people lost their lives and people have just become more aware of their, um, their health and Ways they look for ways to optimize their wellness, some true nutrition. So there's been questions about what can you do uh, to support your immune health? And people have been talking a lot about microbiome and immune health. And I was just wondering if you could shed some light in that area. Are they connected? What should we know about it? And um, what can people do uh, on a practical basis? Just take care of their microbiome. Yeah, the, the term immune health is very important. And uh, we know our immune system play a very important role in keeping us healthy. And so now people are aware, more aware of immune health than ever before. And because of the pandemic and many other reasons. And uh, my uh, colleague, Dr. Margaret McFornay, and uh, actually published an opinion article to say that our immune system, the first task, the primary task of our immune system is not to protect us against uh, infections. People would be surprised, right, to, to say that. It's actually, their primary goal is actually to manage and harness our gut microbiota. So if you look at the, all the immune cells, 70% of our immune cells reside in our gut and 30% in all the rest of our body. Why? Why so many immune cells are concentrated in our gut? It's just because our gut contains the highest number and diversity of various microbes. Many could be dangerous, just like the pathobionts for inducing obesity and diabetes that we, we mentioned. So we needed to make sure that they are not overgrowing and they are properly managed. Otherwise, uh, we, are, we are in deep trouble. We don't need any other infectious agent coming outside. The pathogens inside our guts 
as part of the normal government carbata will just kill us, oh. right? So our immune cells are mainly responsible for uh, managing our gut microbiota so that we can take advantage of that but not get uh, damaged or infected or locally you know, damaged by pathobionics in our gut microbiota. This is one, one side of the, the story. I support this uh, opinion. You know, I, I support this, uh, this hypothesis because many of my research actually are providing evidence. So if you look at the immune systems, it's actually the overreaction of our immune system that kills people. This is a story for COVID-19. And many COVID-19 patients, unfortunately, eventually passed away. It's not because the viral infection itself. It's actually because the overreaction of their immune systems and the, the, the so-called inflammatory cytokine. So because their immune system are overreacting to such a high level that the, the immune system actually can produce things which are damaging our normal cells and tissues. Because in addition to protecting us against the infections of microbes, they are also responsible for uh, removing the damage to the tissues and the cells. If you for wound healing, for example, you need uh, uh, the inflammation. You need uh, that is the activation of your immune system. But if you are overly reacting, if your immune system is overly reacting, it will kill you before the infection actually can cure you. So that means we must be sure that uh, our immune system are not overreacting. But why our immune system overreacting to uh, eventually not lethal viral infection, uh, uh, otherwise not lethal infection? Well, we have a hypothesis that it's just because the endotoxin and the other antigens produced by a disrupted gut microbiota aggravating the inflammation, induce more inflammation. So we know in uh, obesity and uh, diabetic patients got some pathogens which can produce endotoxin, you know, which can induce inflammation is already there, already at a higher level than, no, than other people, healthy people. But when they got viral infection, such as COVID-19, and such infection will actually promote endotoxin-producing bacteria in their gut. So more endotoxin will get into our bloodstream to aggravate the inflammation make the inflammation much worse. And uh, so the inflammation induced viral infection and the inflammation induced by more endotoxin or other antigens from the gut microbiota all combined together to induce overreaction of the, uh, of the in inflammation and other immune reaction and eventually may kill the patient. So we needed to make sure that uh, uh, when they were got infected, we need to manage the gun microbiota and make sure that the pathogen will not be overgrowing. And this can help them. In our, uh, you know, in obese and diabetic people's gut, the, the pathogen already overgrowing a little bit. And, uh, and they also produce more endotoxin. And that's why you have a higher level inflammation. This inflammation damages your insulin receptor, damages the blood vessels and leading to uh, type 2 diabetes and other uh, blood vessel-related diseases. And this is all because inflammation. Mm -hmm. So 
instead of having a strong immune system, we need to have a properly regulated immune system. The strong immune system doesn't always good, uh, do good things. You know, if it's too strong, it may actually damage the host. So managing gut microbiota, because some gut bacteria, they are anti-inflammatory. Instead of inducing inflammation like the passive bounds we, we mentioned, and uh, more importantly, as a very critical or essential part of our normal gut microbiota, you can find some bacteria which are reducing inflammation. And uh, they do two things. And uh, they, can they can produce some bioactive compounds, uh, often called short-chain fatty acids. Short-chain fatty acids, such as acetic acid and butyric acid, can directly reduce inflammation by working on our immune cells. And these kind of compounds also change the gut environment. They are inhibitory to pathobionts. So when, when you have this short-chain fatty acid producing bacteria growing and become predominant members, and then they change the gut environment, they reduce endotoxin and other pro-inflammatory bacteria. So they reduce pro-inflammatory bacteria. They also produce anti-inflammatory compound. So eventually you have well-managed immune reactions and you have reduced inflammation. Oh, that's, that's really impressive. The, the interesting thing, I remember in the paper uh, toward the end of last year where they showed that people were obese, were at risk of um, hospitalization and mortality due to uh, COVID-19. And what you just shared also uh, provided some insight because for, for them already, they already uh, their gut microbiota already had over, overgrown population of these pathogens in, in them already. And then escalated inflammation as well, compared, coupled with other um, um, risk factors they already have based on illness they're experiencing. So I want, there's a question I missed asking earlier, which is about the diet you were on when that resets your gut microbiome. So was it, um, I, I know I read in that science paper that it was um, Chinese yam and something else. And I was wondering, uh, of course, not, not many people will be familiar with that term, like with, the, with the, the food type, but if you could just explain what was peculiar about that food type that really um, was useful or beneficial in resetting your microbiome. Yeah, so many people ask me when I give my talk, you know, uh, after reading my paper, oh, what's in that diet? You know, what's the secret? It's actually not secret. I, as a scientist, my job is to break down any secret, right? Not to produce a secret. <laughs> and uh, so, but we, we come up with the first initial dietary intervention, which we believe can change the gut microbiome to a healthier structure. Actually, we uh, learn from the uh, old wisdom of Ch traditional Chinese medicine. And uh, because we noticed that there are many food can be used as medicine in China, or many medicine can be used as food in China. It's the same thing. So there is an officially published list of plants uh, by China uh, Ministry of Health, which is called the uh, list of plants as a traditional medicinal food. Plants in that list has been used as a medicine by traditional doctors for thousands of years. So they have, you know, evidence, you know, uh, you know, the whole China is an ongoing clinical trial because 
we 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 take all kinds of traditional medicine all the time, even as part of our diet. So they become part of our diet, and then uh, they become part of our diet. So they are also considered as uh, they are regulated as food, as uh, uh, not as uh, medicine, but uh, they can be. They has been used as medicine for thousands of years, and then we look at the you know the possible active ingredients, and we realize there might be two two parts. Two types of ingredients may may play some role for changing the gut microbiota, because first, if you want to change your, your gut microbiota, why changing gut changing diet can change your microbiota is because all the bacteria in our gut they need to continue to grow. So because every day, along with our bowel movement, will will remove part of the growing bacteria. If they don't continue to grow to make to compensate the loss associated with bowel movement, they will become less and less. Eventually, they will be completely washed out from the gut. So, in order to keep the a certain population level in the gut, they need to multiply all the time. Then they need a nutrient to support their growth. But where they can get the nutrients? One is from the diet. Anything in our diet which are not digestible. For example, dietary fibers we cannot digest them, so then they become、uh, energy source for、uh, gut bacteria to support their growth. And all、uh, undigested, for example, you eat a lot of protein, you cannot finish digesting them. Then they would become、uh, energy-rich nutrients to support some growth of some bacteria. And then we know our gut secrete a lot of mucin. The gut epithelial cells will fall off every three days. So these dead cells and mucin, they all become nutrients to support the growth of some gut bacteria. So the nutrients coming from our diet and nutrients locally produced by our gut, all combine together to support a very complex、uh, ecosystem of bacteria and other microbes. And so this is why, if you change your diet, you need to make sure that part of your diet. Or most of the part of your diet actually will be digested and taken by you. They are they cannot become available nutrients to gut bacteria because you take them away. You know. However, non-digestible components and undigested components of your diet will become nutrients to some gut bacteria, and they can use that to grow. So by changing, yeah, the, by changing the non-digestible part of your diet. You are providing by increasing the non-digestible part of your diet. You are providing purposefully can provide nutrients to some other bacteria. So that's why dietary fiber becomes a major thing, and、uh, bacteria need、uh, energy to grow.、Uh, carbohydrates are the best energy, but、uh, they are usually not available because the carbohydrates in our diet, if they are starch, if they are simple sugars, will take away them. We do not leave anything to gut bacteria because they are also the best energy source for us. However, if you want to give、uh, energy source carbohydrates to gut bacteria, you need to eat dietary fiber because that's the complex carbohydrates you don't digest, you don't absorb, and then they become、uh, energy source for gut bacteria. So in those traditional Chinese medicinal food, they have many polysaccharides, plant polysaccharides. We can call them, lump them together as dietary fiber. There's also another group of、uh, chemicals called phytochemicals, small molecules、uh, such as polyphenols. 
And uh, many polyphenols are antioxidants, but they are not absorbable. They, ha they have very low bioavailability. You eat uh, one gram, you have only a tiny bit which can get into the bloodstream. Most of them stay in the gut. And uh, how can they protect you if they don't get into your bloodstream? You don't need them to get into your bloodstream because they are not actually, they are antioxidant, but they are not protecting you. They are protecting the beneficial bacteria because the beneficial bacteria in our gut, they are the so-called obligate anaerobic bacteria. They do not need oxygen to grow, but they are highly sensitive to even a trace amount of oxygen. Any trace amount of oxygen and produce free radicals can kill them. So when you eat polysaccharides, you give them, you give the beneficial bacteria energy source for them to grow. When you eat polyphenols or other antioxidants in plant food, you actually pro protect them by removing free radicals in your, in your gut. You protect the beneficial bacteria. So you need the combination of all these, uh, you know, microbiome nutrition to become uh, a diet which can protect you. So that's why I call the new diet, feed me, feed my microbiome diet. Yeah, because I need to eat fats, carbohydrates, and, and the protein and other micronutrients for myself. So the, the major part of my diet is eating for myself, of course. However, I still need a room for including uh, nutrients for the beneficial part of my microbiome. So mainly polysaccharides and uh, phytochemicals. That's really interesting. You know, when, when you talked about um, some of those, some of the diets we indulge in, uh, they actually help those, um, like, let me call it uh, pathogenic um, bacteria. Um, and then you have some that support the good bacteria, the one that you really want to try, the one that supports good health. So it's, it's really interesting to see how all these dynamics play out because a lot of times when people, people hear um, health professionals, whether it's um, your, your nutritionist or your physician say, oh, don't hit this, reduce the amount or intake um, um, IFAT diet or something. People just think, this is just making my life difficult. I want to enjoy, you know. But now knowing what the, all the key roles that what we, our choices, our food choices play in the health of our gut and our overall health it's uh it's very uh, very enlightening and thanks for sharing that so before we wrap things up i there's another question that i want to, i wanted to talk a little bit about your work there was especially the one the, the one that you published three years ago in science where you showed clearly that high fiber diet favor the growth of specific bacteria i show your clinical trial that um, it did lower blood sugar levels when when you put. Um, I'll, I'll allow you to explain in details, but when you put a particular uh, your cohorts, your treatment group, on a particular diet for a period of time, you did see changes based on the change that you observed in their gut microbiota. You saw changes in also their metabolic features as well. Blood sugar levels were reduced. So I just thought if if you could shed some more light on that work the clinical trials that you did and the results you observed. Yeah, thank you. That's my favorite study, of course. <laughs> and uh, uh, just like you mentioned, uh, it's, uh, we need to realize that we cannot just uh, eat at our free will. 
We cannot just eat because we like it. We need to consider, okay, when we eat, we are not just eating for ourselves, but we are also eating inevitably for our gut microbiota. But because our gut microbiota are very complex, some are beneficial to and protective to us, but are, some may be detrimental and pathogenic. They have actually different requirements for nutrients. So when you design and prepare your diet, you need to make sure that you balance your own nutritional needs and the nutritional needs of the beneficial part of your microbiota. So this is exactly what we did when we designed a clinical trial for type 2 diabetes patients. And uh, so people may not be convinced that, oh, no, 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 I need a scientific evidence. Yes, that study actually provides, uh, I think, the high scientific evidence with the highest possible rigor so far in the microbiome field. And first, we do randomize the study, control the study. So when patients come into the study, they are randomized into the control group or treatment group. And uh, the two groups, we control everything. So the total calorie intake, the same, the macronutrients, the same. And the only difference is the treatment group had about 30 grams of fermentable fiber intake, extra intake compared with the control group. And then over three months, and we see significantly more reduction of HB1C and more weight loss in the treatment group. Because of the randomized controlled design, it's a RCT study. So you can only attribute the actual reduction of HB1C and actual weight loss in a treatment group to the actual intake of the dietary fiber, nothing else. So because of the rigor of the study design, we established a causal relationship between the actual fiber intake, the actual clinical benefit. And then we did the transplantation. So we transplanted the microbiota from the same patient before the intervention and the three months after the intervention from the same patient to different microbiota uh, because the new diet changed the microbiota to a different structure, but in the same person's gut. And then we, we gave this two microbiota from the same person into germ-free mice. So the no one, not surprisingly, the baseline gut microbiota from the type 2 diabetes patients actually increased uh, uh, blood glucose level in the recipient mice. Well, the three months after intervention microbiota didn't. So this is another very strong causality evidence. So the, the patient gut microbiota actually can induce disease in germ-free mice, similar disease in germ-free mice. But after three months intervention microbiota from the same patient didn't. So the microbiota was responsible for the disease and uh, its new structure was responsible for the improvement. So then we did a very detailed, rigorous microbiota analysis. We did a metadermic sequencing. We identified 5 million genes, and then we eventually identified uh, 141 bacteria based on their genome, you know. And uh, they are the major ones which can produce sodium fatty acid. But when you give extra dietary fiber, only 15 of those bacteria promoted to a high level, become predominant, take over the gut ecosystem. 79 of them didn't change, didn't respond. Well, 49 actually reduced. If you look at the reduced ones, they can produce endotoxin, induce inflammation, damage the insulin receptor, induce insulin resistance. 
and they can produce uh, two toxic compounds, endotoxin, endo and hydrogen sulfide, which can actually reduce the production by our gut cell of a very important hormone called GLP-1. GLP-1, when it's produced by our gut cells, can produce, can promote insulin production. But these two compounds, toxic compounds produced by the potentially pathogenic bacteria, actually can inhibit production of GLP-1. While the 15, what we call positive responding bacteria, promoted, selectively promoted by the combination of dietary fiber, actually can produce acetic and butyric acid, the two beneficial compounds which can promote production of GLP-1 and then promote insulin production. So you can see that this is almost like a seesaw. You have two groups of bacteria. This group of bacteria can be promoted by the um, dietary fiber specifically. And when they become predominant, then the other group of pathogen bacteria are driven down. But previously, they were, they were dominating the takeover of the system and they induce inflammation and they then inhibit your insulin production. So that's why you become diabetic. But if you promote the right group of bacteria and then you can suppress the, the, the pathogenic bacteria. So we come down to specific genomes of the group of beneficial bacteria and the group of pathogenic bacteria. And we also isolated the individual bacteria into live culture. And we showed that at least one of the isolated bacteria in the 15 genome, beneficial bacteria, when you isolate the live culture corresponding to that genome, that live culture is a very good uh, uh, probiotic strain, which can reduce uh, blood glucose level in animal, germ-free animals uh, inoculated with the type 2 diabetes patients got microbiota. So all these pieces coming together provide the uh, causality evidence with the highest possible rigor that you have two groups of bacteria, one beneficial and one pathogenic, and they have different dietary requirements. They have different nutritional requirements. You need to make sure that when you design and uh, prepare and uh, take your, your diet, you need to make sure that you are nurturing and uh, promoting the beneficial group of bacteria and uh, suppressing the, the bad one and not to the opposite. Right, right. So I hope uh, some, you know, everybody watching this show, eventually after you leave uh, this show, you have a take home message. Yes. You are no longer you. You are you and your gut microbiota. <laughs> so when you eat, you should eat both for you and for your gut microbiota, yeah. not just uh, eat for yourself. That's very selfish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if you're selfish, you'll find out later how that works out with your health because it doesn't just stay there. It affects your health. You feel the pain and you know that you need to reset. So definitely um, food is important and it's important to prioritize what you're eating every single day because those choices matter. Thank you so much for making time to share your insights with us. This is this has been very, very enlightening. Uh, really, really appreciate you making the time. Thank, thank you everyone for joining us today. You will find the link to Dr. Zhao's website uh, and you'll find his research papers on, on his website as well if you want to follow up more on his work uh, in the show notes. Uh, so make, make time to check it out and check out his, um, his, his work as well and leave uh, feedback or contact his lab if you need more information. Thank you again for listening to us today. Thank you, Dr. Zhao, for making the time to share your knowledge and expertise with us. We really, really appreciate it. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I'd like to share a very important tool that makes it very easy for me to prepare this podcast every single episode with you. And that tool is a platform called Anchor. Anchor is a platform created by Spotify, which makes it very easy to record, edit, merge, insert music into your audio, and just prepare everything you need for each of your episodes. It also makes it easy for you to work with your team as well. They could prepare the files for you and you upload easily or they upload for you. Whatever you want to do with preparing for and broadcasting your podcast, Anchor makes it easy. So check it out. It's free to create your account. And I also want to add this as a sponsored segment. Thank you again for listening to this episode. I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. Cheers. Thank you for listening. And until the next time we bring another exceptional leader your way, stay in touch with us on all social media platforms. Find details in the show notes.